A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the From the Vaults Rugby podcast. My name is Phil McGowan and this World Rugby Museum podcast will explore some of the greatest players and moments in rugby's long history featuring first-hand witnesses, commentary and interviews with the people who shaped our sports. In this edition of From the Vaults, we talk to Red Rose legend Nolly Waterman about her 15 years at the top of the women's game, 15s and 7s, how she battled injury to become a World Cup winner in 2014, scored one of Twickenham's greatest tries and has since forged the path as a pundit and commentator for both the men's and women's game. Plus, we look ahead to the Rugby World Cup in New Zealand later this year. Right, Nolly, thanks for taking the time to speak to us today. Uh, this is the World Rugby Museum's podcast. So my first question is about your dad. Tell us about Jim. He's a good guy. Um, yeah, played over 400 games for Bath and a bit of a legend by all accounts, but he never really talks about it. Um, and yeah, huge influence on my career. Um, I think growing up with two brothers, I was always destined to be a bit rough and tumble the way we behaved and rugby suited that. But I think just... The way my dad coached us and approached how he encouraged us, you know, he never treated me any differently. And my mum as well, um, they didn't treat me any differently to my brothers in terms of, you know, if I wanted to play rugby, I played rugby. If I wanted to do a different sport, I, that's what I did. And and also he he never let me win easily. It wasn't like I'm the younger sibling and, and, and a girl, so let, let her win. I had to earn the right to do it. So I think, yeah, the competitive streak was well and truly enforced <laughs> early doors. All right, let me just read his stats out. So 416 matches for Bath, 43 tries, played from 1968 to 1982. So an absolute legend at the wreck. Does he still get up there? Um, you know, he, I only managed to get him back, um, I think around eight or nine years ago um, for the first time. And it was when Mike Bees was chairman. And we walked in and it was unbelievable um, to to hear them tell, t- telling, about, telling the stories and... They spoke about that he was kind of the last one to, to join the crew again. Um, and Brendan Perry, who played fly half through that time, um, who's the father of Matt Perry, was there. And Matt actually came in and said, was kind of amazed that Jim was there. And he, and he said, oh, it's so good to finally meet you because I've been using your peg my whole career. And I was like looking at him thinking, oh my God, this is Matt Perry talking to my dad. Um, and yeah, so to hear the stories about, you know, what it was like to play in that team with my dad and how creative they were in the 70s. You know, I think I uh, I have the short hamstrings like my dad, so kicking was a massive part of my game. And, you know, from his perspective in that era, there there was, like, the fullback did all the kicking, but because he didn't, he ran it, which actually suited the way that Bath wanted to play. So, yeah, there was quite a big generational um, movement at Bath in, in terms of how exciting they were with their play. And he was a massive part of that, which I think... Yeah, it, as as his daughter and as someone that, you know, loves the game, I think it was really cool to hear um, his part in that. So he was a, a marauding attacking fullback, which was still relatively new in the, the 70s uh, and sounds quite familiar. Um, so <laughs> was that instilled in you from a, a young age? Was that the way to play? Did you try other positions? Um, so I actually got my first cap at scrum half. Um, and the reason I ended up at nine was I'd played mini rugby with the boys. I I was played at prop because um, I was probably bigger than most of the boys when it was three. And then when they uh, said we were getting second row, so fives in, in the scrum, um, they did, weren't too keen on one of the, the second rows having to put their hand between my legs. So they were like, right, you can move out. And I think I, I just played wherever, really. Um, and... Yeah, and then I, I didn't know about women's rugby or girls' rugby. There wasn't any of that around. Um, and I remember filling out the form for the Southwest Under-16s trials, and I hadn't played for a couple of years. 
And I didn't know what positions to put. So my dad was like, well, you get your hands on the ball loads at Scrum Half, just put that down. Um, that stuck for a little while and then realised that actually um, one of the big parts of my game was a running game. Um, I was at Clifton in the early part of my career with Susie Appleby, who was the England Scrum Half at the time. So to get us both on the field, I played on the wing. Same with England and um, with Joe Yap when Susie retired. So yeah, that's kind of how I ended up being back out in the uh, in the outside backs. And I think, to be honest, um, I never really had the pace for a winger. So moving to fullback was, um, yeah, more suited. <laughs> so it was a little bit of a roundabout movement for me. But um, I think once I finally did move back there, I definitely felt at home. And having my dad to to coach me and to, you know, take me through it. And my both my brothers played fullback as well. So they always chipped in with... Uh, not much praise, more uh, more things I should be doing and improving on. <laughs> so I think there's a, a, a change in the women's game around about your generation. So before you, Sue Day, Jill Burns, both started playing rugby in their teens, or late teens. You and Katie Daly McLean, how old are you when you first started playing? That's, so that's a big difference, isn't it? To grow up playing the game as opposed to finding it later in life. Yeah, I know it's massive. And I think... Yeah, so I started when I was four because my brothers just went up to the rugby club and joined in and loved it. Um, as I say, there wasn't even any girls rugby back in West Somerset. I actually spent four years in New Zealand um, between the ages of five to nine and I played and I was the only girl there um, as well. But um, I think the fact that I wasn't treated any differently at the rugby club by my family or anything, I never really noticed it. When I noticed it was when I had to finish and I was gutted that I couldn't be playing the sport I loved I was pretty good at with all my mates the boys was that then actually there wasn't very much available to me to just have that natural regression to play for the girls and I think that that's probably where the big shift generationally generationally is now because actually girls can come out of playing with the boys into girls rugby or just start straight into girls rugby which is amazing um what sticks with me actually when you talk about the the older generation for me so the absolute legends like you know Susie and Daisy and Jill Burns I I list off so many wonderful women is that when I got my first cap I was 18 years old I was still at school I was over in Ireland and we were sat down having dinner the night before and we were chatting about the fact that I was so young and they were giving me a bit of banter and you know as as teams do nicely um And we worked out that actually I had played longer than the vast majority of the England team and even players. So Susie, who was starting at Scrum Half, um, who at the time I think had nearly 50 caps for England, I'd played longer than her um, as an 18-year-old, even with the little gap that I had between playing between the boys and the girls. So it just showed that they started the game that much later, but yet had accelerated to where they'd got to. And and I was also really fortunate that although they hadn't been playing the game that, you know, as you know, they hadn't played from minis and juniors, they clearly knew the game well, but it, and, and they were amazing rugby players. But they also had this amazing professional attitude around being the best athlete as well. And and I think I'd just taken for granted being a good rugby player and I'd never really had to combine it with the thought that I needed to be an amazing athlete. And what what did that look like? An elite athlete behaviour, um, especially because I was still at school and um, I think that's what that generation did for me and for, for setting the tone for the Red Roses legacy was that they were just incredibly professional with their outlook. And, you know, although it was with a, a little P because they weren't play, paid, that is why, you know, myself and Katie Daly-McLean and Rachel Burford, Kim Oliver, people that went on to get 80-odd caps, you know, over 100 caps to the country, that's where our our first experience started and they gave us the the foothold into understanding, you know, what it was going to take to be the world's best. So you were 18 when you got selected for England. You were the youngest player ever to be selected for England. This is 2003. Uh, and you've mentioned some of the players, because this is a, a kind of a crossover period for England. That some of the players like Jill Burns and um, Emma Mitchell were retiring and you were the first of the next group to come through. Um, you'd played for Minehead, Southwest. Were you playing against international class standard players at that point already? Oh, at Minehead? No. Uh, no. <laughs> no, so at, at 16, um, because in Minehead there was just such little um, 
opportunity for me um, and the traveling was really crazy like at 15 whilst I was still at school in Minehead I was selected into the England Senior Academy right. and my dad every other weekend had to drive around five hours to take me to to Loughborough for a training camp um, I wasn't the best company by all accounts we'd get about 15 minutes out of Minehead and I'd fall asleep for the rest of the journey um, but uh, so how how did you get spotted then at 18 playing for Minehead how did you end up in, uh, in the England camp so I wasn't playing for Minehead at that time. So at 15, I'd been picked up um, as part of the Southwest program. There was a national camp that was held at Loughborough. Um, I was in the under-16s game at the end of the weekend, and they were like, you're actually pretty good. Can you come and join in with the under-18s? And I was like, so people I'm, were I'm knackered, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and just got stuck into it. And there was a coach in particular, um, Rob Drinkwater, who was the forwards coach for England at that time, amazing guy Australian um, and he was basically the guy that was introducing the, the, the England Academy working with the likes of Carol Isherwood um, and so they realized that you know I was pretty talented as a youngster and they wanted to involve me um, and I must admit it was pretty scary because at the time like I hadn't even really done that much rugby training with women because I just literally rocked up to trials done a couple of weeks weekends with the southwest and and that was it um and then thrust into the senior environment I wasn't even able to do contact because I hadn't had my 16th birthday um so it was pretty mad and, and then from that there was this realization that actually if I wanted to play for England I probably needed to commit to it a bit more I needed to try and find some other opportunities and they'd set up Oldfield Academy which was based in Bath um, and that's where I headed off to to go and do my A-levels. So, yeah, I lived in my own house um, and there was, I think, uh, around 50, well, about 10, 15 girls in the first year. And there were more in the second year that joined the likes of Rachel Burford, Claire Allen, Kim Oliver, um, Cap Merchant, you know, George was like, like so many, there were so many amazing legends from the women's game. We all started at Oldfield together, which so was a bit a, mad. It's a nursery for future. <laughs> it was. It was all a bit kind of chucked together, and the RFUW, as was then, um, really wanted to give us the opportunity. It was a little bit hectic to all move from every everywhere around the country into our own place and chucked into this school environment. Um, and I suppose, I mean, it taught me a lot about life. I uh, I learned how to live in my own place at sixteen and have to balance the travelling and the training and doing my schoolwork and and then probably what I'd learned from that and the mistakes that some of the girls made academically myself included I definitely stood me in good stead with when I became a head of academy at Hartbury College and and the girls were doing their A-levels alongside their rugby whilst I was coaching them so yeah that that was the starting point um, I was playing for for Clifton when I got my first call up for England um, Jeff Richards gave me the gave me the nod um, Joe Yap who was uh, the scrum half, the, the first choice scrum half was actually over in Hong Kong for the sevens. So that shifted us all up one. Susie started, I came off the bench and uh, yeah, seven minutes of rugby and got a Grand Slam medal around my neck. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. So that was your first Grand Slam after just seven minutes of involvement. But presumably the whole experience of being with the team was a, a huge learning curve in terms of professionalism and so on. And it, this is the amateur period as well, very much so. So you had found a way to be professionally involved in the game very early on, which then meant you could focus on on England specifically. Was that that must have been very exciting at such a young age? Yeah, I mean, I suppose there, were, yeah, there was very limited funding. It came a little bit from the national lottery back at that point. Um, I think we got eight p a mile or something, which didn't quite cover my dad's petrol. But um, yeah, so I did that whilst I was at college, and then I went to university. So the first few years of my England career, I was in in education. Um, and you know that gives you the flexibility to to have more time to train um i was really fortunate that i actually being based um at cardiff university i'd play for bristol but um i didn't just wasn't just surrounded by the england players that were, were at clifton I, there was also a number of welsh players and i would train with them in cardiff lisa burgess um you know the most capped uh, welsh player absolute legend um of the game she was somebody that I trained with whilst I was a student. So there were people that were just amazing women, fantastic athletes, fantastic rugby players, absolute legends of the game. And they were they were there on hand to to support me whilst I was right at the start of my career, which was brilliant. And and I think to add to that, having Giselle Maver as the backs coach for England, 
um, going into the first World Cup when I was 21. I'd left university and then had the summer to to train hard with the team. And um, to have her there, I think, as as a as a woman that had been there and done it as a player, and and you know was obviously back in the game coaching was um, was important for me. I think that support wasn't something that I realised how good it was until now when I kind of reflect back. Um, it wasn't just, so in the summer 2003, alongside you, there were call-ups for Rocky Clark, Kath Spencer, Maggie Alfonsi. You played before all of them. Some of them were a bit older than you at that point as well. Um, what was it like to have this team just gradually grow around you? I don't think any of us realised what we were about to start, to be honest. I think it... You know, we'd played in the England Academy together. I'd got capped in the Six Nations. Rocky went off on summer tour and played over in Canada and was like, I mean, she was a lot bigger then. And I remember the stories coming back that she was pretty much purple at halftime because she was so exhausted. Um, and I think it just, it was just really special because we were all starting it together. And then, you know, to go through our whole careers together was brilliant. You know, they're um, friends that I've got for life and, and we've experienced so much together. But yeah, I think what was also great was that they were amazing rugby players. Um, Rocky was the next youngest in the England Academy. So I was 15 and she was 19. Um, and we couldn't have been more more different in terms of, you know, who we were as people. I was a little tiny scrum half and she was this big, strong prop. Yeah, it was a it was a friendship that I cherished right at the start and a support that we both had for each other. And then, yeah, to to go on and, and to enjoy a fair amount of success together was pretty cool, too. So by 2006, the first World Cup, you've then been joined by Rachel Burford, Katie Daly-McLean, Sarah Hunter. Um the World Cup went well right up to the, to the very last match. Yeah. <laughs> you were three points behind on 80 minutes. Um, Sue Day, who I spoke to recently, thinks that you could have won. What do you think? In all honesty, the 2006 World Cup final was a massive blur. Like it was a, it was a hard tournament for me. I was 21. Um, I think I was the youngest in the squad. Um, I'd pushed hard to to be selected um, and I actually picked up an injury in the training camp. So I went to Canada with an injury. I'd torn my quad. Um, I'd missed the first couple of pool games because of it. I then had to pass a medical um, to be able to stay out in Canada. So I thought at one point I was going to be sent home. Um, the day I did my medical, because I passed and they needed to get me playing, I actually ended up on the bench against South Africa. So it was this real whirlwind of emotion as such a young player to be over there, to not feel like I was part of it because the girls are playing and, and all of that type of balance. And then um, I also was on the bench for the semi-final. It was a big rotation and we nearly lost the semi-final. Um, Kim Shaler did the most amazing try-saving tackle in the corner, which I think was about 78 minutes in and the whole of the <laughs> bench. And I was the only one that hadn't got on um, because they, I was covering scrum half and it was just mad. So, yeah, to then go into the World Cup final, we'd played New Zealand the year before we toured there. They'd beaten us quite comfortably. Um, and to be in the mix of it for the whole game was awesome. Um, I think in terms of the game, all I really remember is just feeling so gutted at the end and being in floods of tears. And I think it probably would have been Daisy came over and put her arm around me and said, you know, you guys have got to change this in four years time and, you know, it'll be, you'll be fine. You know, and I, and actually that stuck with me. And I remember thinking, actually, I'm 21. I can't wait till I'm 25. Um, just to, you know, it's amazing how you shoot forward straight away in four years. Doesn't seem like that long, long to be able to turn it around. Um, but yeah, it was, um, it was a hard pill to swallow because we didn't lose very much in an England shirt at that time. And to do it alongside women that I knew were going to be retiring after that World Cup, who had moved the game forward, who had who had laid that foundation for all of us, it was um, it was a tough one. Okay, so Sue captained England the following year. It was another Grand Slam. 
Uh, Gary Street became coach that year as well, and he very quickly singled you out as, as a key player in the development. What, what can you tell us about Gary as a coach? So I'd actually met Gary, um, he was our England Academy coach at 15 years old, so he knew me from from when I was first involved, um, coached me at college as well. Um, and I think just the way he was, the freedom that he gave us as players really suited me. Um, I think the the support that he'd given me off the field really allowed me to express myself on the field because I felt like he really believed in who I was as a player as quite a, you know, elusive and, and not too structured in, in the way I was. Um, it also helped that early on in my career, being a scrum half, he was a scrum half. So I think I spent a lot of time one-to-one with him practicing my skills. And yeah, to to have that backing, I think as a player, it just builds an extra layer of confidence to to what, what you're doing and not say that you're guaranteed selection or anything, but actually when you're there, they really believe in you. So you try that extra kind of stuff. And that's how he he really tried to allow us to express ourselves as as that interim team between you had players like Daisy who had been around for for you know a number of years were real stalwarts in the squad and then you had a real a mix of youth coming in and that blend worked really well in that that 2006-2007 season. The next World Cup was at home it was at England 2010 and England certainly went in as, as one of the favourites and you were probably playing, playing the best rugby that you've ever played uh, I remember one try you scored against USA in the pool matches where I think you sent half the opposition team the wrong way. Um, tell us a bit about that, what do you remember? It's interesting actually because um, nine months before the nine b- months before the World Cup, we're playing in the autumn and there was a text message that had gone round saying, Katie's injured a knee and we played this club game and we were like, oh no, like, oh my God, what's happened? Anyway, it kind of was fine. It was all blown out of portion. She was fine. But it started this conversation of, oh my God, if you have a serious injury now, the countdown's on. The following week, I'm playing for Worcester and I break through and I go to sidestep the fullback and I just fell over. And I remember thinking, God, it's weird. And I'd hit my head on the way down. So someone kind of came on and said, are you okay? Got the scan results back and I'd ruptured my ACL. And I was the player that all of a sudden was, oh my God, is she going to get back for the World Cup? Um... It was tough. It was a really tough emotional journey and, I, and I'd never really experienced anything so significant. At the time, between eight, eight and 12 months was the return, so there was a possibility that I could get back. Um, and then eight months to the day, I was ready to play my first game, which happened to be a warm-up game over in Wales, against Wales, in the rain, in a horrible, boggy pitch. And I remember being in, having ultimate fear that my knee wasn't going to be okay and I wasn't going to be all right and I was really lucky because Tamara Taylor who I'd known from academy days you know great friend we'd gone through the 2006 world cup she was my roommate then she had done her ACL about she'd kind of gone through the process about six months before me and she sat me down and wrote me this amazing card and said you're going to be fine and and I know it sounds silly but that one moment and that one conversation gave me the the ability to be able to get through it. And we played, we, I played quite well. Um, Katie, knowing that I was in full fear, they did a, a miss one pop, which meant that I had to crash the ball in. So the first move that they did, they slammed me into collision. Um, and I, you know, after that, I was all good to go. But yeah, that was the building to the World Cup. And I think a lot of people see the product at the World Cup where physically I was really well, you know, drilled. I was in brilliant shape. I'd worked so hard in my rehab, but mentally, I was struggling every game because I just felt like, oh, this is surely too good to be true to score tries like I did against America to get play, player of the match. And, um, you know, it was all brilliant. England were performing really well. And I remember thinking, this, this is going to, something's going to go wrong. And then we played um, Australia in the semi final. Again, I scored and it was this like epic game, massive test match. I thought, oh my gosh, it, am I, is my knee going to be okay? And I think, that whole process was something that I like to talk about now because I think a lot of people from the outside, as I say, always look at the the physical performance. And one thing that Streety said to me afterwards was, it's brilliant. We now know that we can get a world-class player back from an ACL in eight months. So that's like brilliant. 
But actually the conversation that I had was around, well, my mental health was probably about three months behind. And so if that does happen, if that is a situation with any athlete in any situation, that, com- that, that combination of, of mental well-being and physical well-being is, is so crucial. Um, and, and I think that that now, I think when I reflect back on that, it was an amazing World Cup to play at home was just the most special thing. The support that we had, the fact that the crowd at the Stoop were 90% England fans, all there because of us. We weren't a warm-up game, we weren't anything else. All singing Swing Low when the girls lay the tire hard down to do the World Cup. And, you know, this, it was just absolutely epic. But what I went through on a personal level has definitely helped shape me now as a coach because I realised the challenge I went through, but also what why we probably ended up not winning that game in terms of how close we were as a team. Although we were amazing players, I don't know whether we'd done enough to really gel when it went wrong on the field. And that was kind of the the start of the the new journey that we went on ready for the 2014 Mm. World Cup. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, physically and creatively and on the pitch, the team was performing extremely well. The final was brutal. Um, I had a job for that final. I had to deliver the trophy to the stoop before the match. Um, and I very much wanted to bring it back to Twickenham afterwards, <laughs> but wasn't able to. Um, it, it was a huge amount of tension. It was incredibly close. The scores When, when Kath Spencer went off, the scores were level and, and there must have been about 10 minutes left to go, which must have been brutal for her personally as captain. So... Yeah, do you think it was a mental tension in the end that maybe as New Zealand as the holders of the, the the tournament who'd won it twice before, three times before that, there was less pressure on them perhaps? Um, they've definitely obviously you know been there and done it. They actually went down to 13 players at one yeah. point and we didn't manage to, to yeah. score in that time. And And I think the problem for England is that we rarely have those massive, big tension moments because we're fortunate to be such a strong nation that the the close moments, you know, they probably happened a lot more in early career for me than than the girls are experiencing now, you know. But I think definitely seeing out the game was something that New Zealand was stronger at than than we were. Um, I also think that there were lots of moments in that game where we all made uncharacteristic errors um, that just put us a little bit on the back foot. Was that mental pressure? Was that, you know... The, the physical pre- pressure because of the intensity of the match. Um, I think what it did do, you know, was put women's rugby on the map. I think that the the RFU and England rugby put on the most amazing showcase that had never been seen before for women's rugby. They made, they made us feel special as players and I think they made the crowd feel special. The whole thing was was just so exciting and showed that this is what women's rugby is about. Um, and the coverage that we had, I remember um, Julia Hutton, who was our media manager at the time, took every clipping and an article from the newspapers and the internet and 
started putting it up on the wall in our in our accommodation and by the end of the tournament the whole stairwell all the way up through everywhere was covered it was national newspapers it was all these articles and and so it you know it was devastating to lose a world cup at home is is just so heartbreaking and i think the the fact that you know Spence as captain retired after you know the, the the following season a number of the girls had lost in 2002 2006 2010 you know to not be able to to turn it around when we went into that into that game fitter faster stronger than any other team in that in the tournament um potentially a better team than New Zealand were because of the games that we'd had um yeah it was it was awful and isn't a game I've ever watched back Right. So, yeah, so there's you, there's Rocky, there's um, Maggie. So that, that's twice now that you've had this awful experience. So there must have been even more resolve subsequently. So um, Gary worked on, was it some, something on Tuesdays to do with that mental preparation? Did he? How do I imagine in this? Toughen up Tuesdays. Yeah, that must have been. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about that. Um, so it was really interesting in the build-up to to 2014 um we had a bit of a change of personnel with some of our staffing and uh, yeah the um all of a sudden the snc became pretty horrendous and we do loads of skills and fitness under pressure and fatigue and and it was about bringing the team together as much as building our own you know mental and physical resolve to, to overcome challenges but and to be able to to nail our basic skills at you know when we were under that amount of pressure um, but I think probably one of the biggest things that we did in the build up to that World Cup was work out whether how we knew each other as players on and off the field, because as much as we knew each other as rugby players, we had never really deep uh, done a deep dive on who we were as people and shown our massive vulnerability to open ourselves up. And, my, and we did the most incredible video before we flew over to France um, talking about what it meant to win the World Cup and why we did what we did and we all did it in a in a room I remember going in and filming it as an old camera and um, probably to produce a VHS or something <laughs> um, and we just had to sit there and talk to the camera and talk to it and we weren't shown it until we arrived in Paris and seeing it back and, and li listening to my teammates talk about the fact that they were there because of you know their their, their why was their their parents and their their family their siblings or that they had become such close friends with the team and that rugby what did rugby mean to them and and i think that those little moments that we did really started to gel us together as a team um, and brought out a different side to us all and and there was also one session that we sat down with our, our psychologist and talked about who we were on a good day and who we were on a bad day and it sounds really silly but actually just talking about that and saying you know when I'm having a bad day because everyone does I probably might be a bit short I might take things a bit you know personally might be a bit quiet might go a bit grumpy whatever it might be and just talking about that and being open about that was something that helped us just understand each other on a, on a slightly different level um, and so when we were in training it just allowed us to to bring a different level of um of closeness to to us as a team and, and also we had loads of fun we had an amazing medical team it was headed up by um dr justin and he was great fun he'd been brought in and um he'd come from an army background and so for him being out and, and you know working together was really crucial and he pulled together the medics which then allowed everyone to be you know as fit as possible um going into the tournament and, and after each games and after with a four-day turnaround you get pretty tired by game five. <laughs> mm. So yeah, they had a big part to play in it. Just before talking about 2014, I need to talk about the Six Nations in the, the period between the two World Cups. So 2011, you won a Grand Slam with 223.4 and only five against, which is a record in the men's and the women's game. And this was in the middle of a run of seven consecutive championships, six of which were Grand Slams, which again is the most dominant period uh, the men and women's, women's game ever in history. Um, and you've beaten New Zealand five times in 2011 and 2012. So to say that you turned the disappointment of 2010 into a catalyst for improvement, I think is an understatement. But then 
playing that well, you've got that challenge of staying on the horse in 2014 and, and getting the job done. So, you know, how did what was the mood like going in? Was it supreme confidence? But it can't, it can't be confidence after the disappointment that you've already had. So what was it like? Um, it was an interesting one, actually, because although we were having all of that success in 15s, um, sevens was also bubbling away and, and a bit, the vast majority of the back line did both coats. Um, and on a personal level, I'd actually started to have quite a few injuries. I had three surgeries between the 2010 and 2014 World Cup. So I'd done my ACL before the 2010 World Cup and then I had three more surgeries just with different injuries. So I kept missing key moments or key games or autumns or whatever it might be. Um, and I jumped between sevens and fifteens and we had huge disappointment in 2013. Um, I didn't end up touring. I was selected to go but got injured before the girls flew over to Russia for the Sevens Rugby World Cup. Um, and I think they ended up coming eighth. Um, they lost to Russia in the pool game, um, which then meant they played New Zealand in the quarterfinal. And, and it was awful given that in 20, 2009 we were going in favourites in the Sevens Rugby World Cup in Dubai and we lost to Australia in the quarters, which knocked us out of that tournament. So to then go and, and not do well with such an amazing squad at the time was really difficult. That then was followed by a tour to New Zealand and the girls um, didn't do well. Um, so I think from that point of view... You can have all of that success in the Six Nations. You can have all of that success in the games that you're playing, New Zealand coming over and touring and stuff. But but I think that probably emphasised that the, the rest of the rugby world were, were catching up with us and that we were the ones that everyone was aiming for, whether that be on the field or off the field in terms of what we were delivering from a performance perspective with coaching and, and the packages around us, so whether it be nutrition or S&C or analysis and medical. So, yeah, I think that that definitely drove us all on. For me, I played, I think it ended up being about 60 minutes of rugby in 2013. So actually, I had a real quick acceleration back into, into the 15 squad I actually did a couple of tournaments early in 2014 with the sevens I joined them for the last six nations game over in Italy which we won we actually won the six nations but didn't get the grand slam that year um but to finish that tournament on a high was really important for us to then and for us all to come back together ready to then have a big summer and a big you know big load of work ready for the world cup yeah, and as you say that I think the big difference between 10 and 14 is the standard broadly speaking and that was borne out by the results of so Canada drew with England in the, in the pools. Um, and then Ireland had that huge victory against New Zealand. Um, so that set up a semi-final England against Ireland, which I think arguably was England's best performance of that tournament. Would you agree? Yeah, 100%. We knew that, you know, after after drawing in the in the pool games, none of us knew what that meant. And I, and I remember, God, there, might, there, there wouldn't have been too many too many minutes to go and a ball was fly hacked along the floor but picked up by one of them so as fullback I came forward I made the tackle she offloaded but I was the last line of defense and Mandy Mandy Marchek one of their kind of outstanding performers for years in sevens and fifteens had made this line break and they were scoring between the posts and I remember getting up from the tackle thinking we're out of the world cup like you cannot lose a pool game in this in, in the women's format and the referee blew the whistle, but wasn't standing there on the try line. And I thought, what's happening? And she called them back for a forward pass. And, and there was this big relief and all of the England squad were looking around thinking, how has that just happened? And at that moment, we were drawing still and we, the message came on, you've got to see the game out, a draw is enough. And we didn't know. We hadn't even. I hadn't even. I had no idea what that meant. Whether it, you know, we hadn't even looked at a draw. We just knew that we needed to win. Like what would happen to the draw? Um, and so, the forwards. I mean, fair play to them. I think there was about nine million pick and goes. <laughs> we didn't touch the ball once as the back line. Um, and the final so and we got the draw. Um, and then, I remember being up in the stands. Um, having watched New Zealand play Ireland 
getting back to the hotel and seeing that game play out. And we were like, well, if New Zealand win, does that mean we face them in the semi-final? And then we were kind of thinking, oh my God, what would it be like to play New Zealand in a World Cup semi-final having lost them to them in two finals? And then we were like, no, you want to play the better. And then it was like, well, if they lose, that means we might not play them. So it was like, no, but we want to play New Zealand in a World Cup. Like, that's our history. If we don't beat New Zealand, that doesn't change history. But then we were like, well, actually, you know what? It's, you know, we, we're going to play whoever's good. So then when it came to the semi-final against Ireland, they'd won the Grand Slam in 2013. They'd put, pulled out an incredible performance against the Black Ferns. So it was like, we knew that as a team, we had to be the best that we could be. I had never been so focused going into a game. And actually the most nervous I've ever been has been in World Cup semi-finals. Not the finals, because you're there. Then it's just down to 80 minutes. Semi-final will determine whether you've even got a shot. And to play the team that were beating New, had beaten New Zealand was massive. So yeah, I think when we, I think it was 40 odd points we put on them. They and at that point, any whoever we'd played that game, we would have beaten because we were outstanding. Because everybody was world class at their job, and I and I, and I think from that point of view, we were then really comfortable going into the final that we were in the best possible place that we could be. So it's Canada again in the final. You scored a try again. Tell us about it. How did it feel? It was a close game, wasn't it? They England pulled out at the end, but Canada were very much in it for most of the game. Yeah, it was mad. Um, so I remember right at the start, where they'd really got one over on us in the in the pool game was in, in at set piece, which was bizarre because our front row were world class. We had um, Sophie Hemming, Vicky Fleetwood, um, Rocky Clark. You know, the, the, these were absolute rock stars, and somehow they'd managed to to get get over us, which then put us on the back foot. And the first scrum of the game, Maggie's on the flank, and uh, they get the it's their scrum, get the ball out, and we get the nudge on, and Maggie absolutely melted their fly half. And I remember thinking, we're going to win this game because that's what we that's where we struggled. Um, we just got to keep hold of the ball. <laughs> that's where we also struggled in the balls. Um, but yeah, to be to be to score in the final was mad because. It actually started from a from back row play. So I'd got the ball and we'd gone down one edge. And then I think every single player at that point, it was such a team try, like the, everyone was doing was doing jobs that they wouldn't normally do. So Rocky made a scrum half pass. Rach had to do one of the big clear outs. She had like all of the forwards interlinking. Tamara Taylor, the skillful player she is always, like we've all known it. She got to show the world with this epic dummy. And then I'm set up so deep thinking there's going to be a collision in the midfield and then it'll be shifted. But all of a sudden, Tamara makes this line break and then the ball goes to Maggie, who's not known for a passing. <laughs> and I just remember screaming so loud to her that I was there. But I was at absolute full tilt when I caught the ball, which rarely happens because normally you're kind of over chasing. But I was so deep that it worked in my favour because I there's no way that the, the covering defence could get to me. Um, and then I just remember thinking, just get the ball down, just get it down, whatever you do, don't drop it. <laughs> and then they all piled in on me and um, yeah, it was pretty cool. <laughs> Game's not won at this point though. So like I said, it was very close for, a, for much of the second half. It must have been when Emily scored, Emily Scarlett scored that try that then you started to think that you're nearly there. Yeah, um, so it's really interesting because on the field it felt, it definitely felt totally different to I think how it must have felt in the in the stands and when you look back at it in the, you know, and you listen to the commentary and the tension in the in the commentary box. Because um, in the second half, I remember Magley Harvey was kicking really well and they'd taken a penalty which then took them to, I think, within three points or they, they closed the gap. And Sarah Hunter and I obviously stood at the back on the kickoffs ready. So we'd kick them ready for kick receipt. And I remember giving her a thumbs up being like, you're right, mate. And she's like, yeah, yeah, cool. Like there was like this note, we were kind of really calm, really chilled. We were just like, Scans and I hadn't had a great match. We'd kept, she threw one over my head. I'd overrun another one. We weren't quite linking in the back line. Um, so then, yeah, when she finally made the line break, it was an epic try, you know, just battered away through. She was kicking so well that we knew that if we'd got another penalty, she would take the points. Um, 
So yeah, and actually in that game, she kicked my face as well and split my face open. So um, yeah, the Emily Garrett's golden boot, the most most points scored, I think, in a World Cup. Um, I had the pleasure of exiting the field for some stitches to come back on again. So it wasn't um, all good. No, nah, it wasn't all good, <laughs> but hey, it gave me a, an impressive shiner that all the media liked the next day. <laughs> you At the end, you paid tribute to previous players. Um, it was a journey for the Red Roses, wasn't it? It wasn't just the players on the field. It was a culmination of something that had been going on for a few years, I think. Oh, decades. You know, right back from the time from when... Carol Isherwood set up the the England or well, the Team GB team, you know, with Jill Burns. Um, I think Karen Ormond was captain at the first World Cup when they won. Um, you know, the fact that all of them had had different impacts, whether that was playing alongside them, being the performance director, coaching us. You know, Sue Day being one of the coaches that came to Oldfield to coach us as 16, 17 year olds. Um, to then being our captain, to you know all of the people that had gone into it as players, but also off the field as the coaches, and and I think because it was an amateur sport, there was just this love and desire and passion to do it for each other and to be the best that we could be. Um, so to have so many of them in the stands was awesome, um, and yeah, we would never have been the player that the the, the players and the team that we were if it wasn't for the legacy that they set for us. Um, so to win it 20 years later um, and to lift the trophy was really special. And I suppose the, the hardest thing is that you want all of those players that have played in between those 20 years to be able to stand there with you um, because it is, it's for everyone. Um, that and the friends and family that have mopped the tears, wiped the blood away <laughs> um, from all the cuts and bruises. And um, yeah, I think it, it kind of all came together um, for everyone. I heard a story that you bumped into Jill Burns and a few others in a bar after the match, you know, <laughs> yeah. playing guitar, singing songs. Yeah, so there was this, um, there was this one bar on a roundabout that all the friends and family were meeting at um, before the game, so it was the semi-final and final. And I knew about it because that's where my mum, who was like quite known for being a good tourist, loved a beer and my brothers and everyone were going. So they were meeting up with other friends and family and parents. And um, and on the way back from our function at the stadium where we'd done all the kind of the normalness, like normal parts of winning a tournament or being part of the tournament, um, we drove around the roundabout and we realised that it was that pub that where they were we had no idea that we were going to do it and so streety who had befriended the um the driver said can you stop can you stop like and so being a little bit crazy just pulled up this massive bus on a roundabout just stopped <laughs> all the traffic and everyone realized it was us they piled out of the bar a few hundred people all of our closest friends and family like our parents brothers sisters partners um all of the older girls, the former Red Roses, everyone that could have, couldn't have been closer to all of us were there. And they all sang Swing Low when Katie and Sunta came off the bus with the, with the cup. And then we all kind of traipsed out. And even just thinking about it now, I get quite emotional because it was just so special to be able to, to share that moment with them and to take the actual World Cup to them. I've got some brilliant photographs of the World Cup with my family and my mum. And um, yeah, it was um, it was really cool. And uh, I think something that we all cherished as much as they all did as well. Okay, by the next World Cup, you're a professional player, as were most of your teammates. How important has that been to the women's game? Um, we went professional initially in the end of 2014 um, for two years in the build-up to Rio and I think what it allowed us to do was was dedicate the time to to training um, but also to the rest and recovery you know for me um, I was 29 I I, uh, I I'd had a number of injuries and actually to try and balance doing all of the training that we needed to be able to be the best that we could be athletically as much as on the field as a player with our rugby skills was getting harder and harder to do alongside doing a full-time job. Um, so just having that opportunity was was huge. Um, I actually had 
my biggest injury at that time, right early in 2015, which took me out for 17 months. And I think if I personally hadn't been professional at that time, I would have really struggled to make it back for, for Rio Olympics and then been able to continue for the 2017 Rugby World Cup. Um, so for me, yeah, I massively benefited. And also it just instantly gave the women's game the credibility that it deserved. You know, we were world champions and we were professional players. Um, it was really funny every time I filled out a form for about a year, I would laugh when someone would ask me like, or oh, if I had to write my profession or someone asked me, oh, what's your job? And I'd be like, I, I, I genuinely be like, oh, I'm a professional rugby player. And they'd be like, are you? Like, are you joking? Because you're laughing. I was like, yeah, no, I am. It's just really weird to say it um, after uh, 15 years, <laughs> finally. Um, but yeah, it was that kind of what comes with being a professional. I think that status within the game was was massive. Um, and it was a big turning point for for us as sevens players, you know, the, there were other nations that were already professional. They'd already been professional for a couple of years, which meant that we were slightly behind on that front. But then it also set the, the tone ready for when the girls were able to join us for, in that January in the build up to the to the Rugby World Cup in 2017. OK, um, you've mentioned the Olympics and sevens, so we haven't talked about that much yet. But what, what was that like as an experience in Rio? It's hard to describe really because it was just so epic. Um, I think for us, as female rugby players, we weren't involved in any multi-sport events before that. So we'd only ever been to like European tournaments or um, Rugby World Cups, but it was always rugby. So to be able to finally go to something where there was so many different sports and so many different athletes in itself was awesome. And, and just seeing all of the colors and the, the nations that were being represented and everyone there, was achieving a dream. Um, it was pretty mad to comprehend how many people were there because my town has about nine, 10,000 people and the Athlete Village has about 10,000 people. So <laughs> it was pretty mental um, to experience that. Um, I'd been on, again, I'd been on quite a journey um, from a injury perspective, coming back from my knee injury and, and just being able to perform at the standard that got me selected was pretty huge. So um, from a rugby point of view, it was disappointing to, to personally not feel like I was playing my best rugby, but at the same time to not go over the line, you know, not to get a medal because we were definitely in a position where we could have and, and possibly should have. Yeah, I think it's important for rugby. It was the first time since 1924 that rugby had featured at the Olympics and the first time ever that women had played rugby at the Olympics. And I think that'll be more important as time goes on. Um, it's wanna... huge. It's yeah. huge for rugby. Um... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 